Hey guys, welcome to episode 61 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. And this is our first married episode. Yes, it is. Very exciting. The day was so perfect. It was actually like a week ago. Yeah. Today that we got married. I mean, everything went perfect. Yes. And the fact that we were able to like show everybody was even better. Yeah, it was really special to be able to share pictures with you guys. But the pictures we had are just pictures that people sent us. So we promised to, as soon as we get some good stuff, we'll send it on forward. I don't know what the outcome of our photographer is going to be because he was a little bit out of his mind and he kept making us pose for the same picture. So we might just have a lot of the same thing to show you guys just with different backgrounds. Yeah, he didn't like to use different angles. Let's put it no. that way. And um, <laughs> he also did like weird things where if he wanted us to like like say cheese, I guess, he would go, give me a ha-ha. No, no, like if he wanted us to laugh, like a big yeah. laughing picture. It was just weird. He was and like, my, give me a ha-ha. Yeah, my whole family was like, what? What is he doing? Well, at the end, my cousin started making a joke of it, and she's like, let's do a ha-ha. And he was like, you get it, you get it. And I'm like, she's really just being a jerk right now. <laughs> yeah. But other than that, the day was fantastic. And, you know, it just makes both of us very happy, Kay, Kay and I, you know, that we get to just show, like, the intimate side and our personal life. So yeah. everyone was really nice and all oh, the, the kind words. Oh, the were amazing. Yeah. They were so sweet. And um, the only thing that I think we might have possibly done wrong was the drinking the night before. We got... We got a little carried away on Friday. So Saturday was a hard morning. And I still feel like I'm recovering. Like my voice still got some blood vessels popped. It was a rough, it was a rough day. Yeah, the <laughs> night before was intense. But I knew that it would be just because we had a lot of characters at our wedding. And I knew that there would be that no way that I wouldn't be able to drink a lot. <laughs> you know? It's true. And we totally want to share some video with you guys. And we're excited to just continue letting you share in our day. It was really, it was perfect. It really was. So now that we're married, I just want to put out there that if anything happens to me, statistically, it's going to be Johnny. And also my favorite audience in the world. <laughs> Likewise, if anything happens to me, it's probably Kay. I'll try not to. So far, so good. We've yeah. gotten through a week. That's hey, pretty look, solid. Honestly, at this point, we've been together for a really long time. Yeah, in November, it'll be yeah. eight years. So, I mean, in my eyes, we've always been married, but now it's official. Yeah. We've lived together for a while, so. Yeah. Okay, so let's get into our story today. So, this one, as we're approaching Halloween, I figured it would be great to cover somebody who is just another monster, like we've covered so many times before. But this monster doesn't need the guise of Halloween to come out. She was hiding in plain sight all along. Because, like people say, it's not always the people outside that you have to worry about. Sometimes it's the ones within your own home. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Our story begins in 1985 when a young couple meets in Weedsport, New York. Stacy was 17 years old and Michael was 23. From what friends and family say, the couple fell madly in love. 
Stacy loved Michael's larger-than-life personality. His laugh was infectious, and everyone always wanted to be around him. And so did she. The two had a baby in 1988, a girl they chose to name Ashley. Although they were young, they were excited for the next chapter in their lives. Five years after meeting, and two after their first daughter was born, the couple got married on April 7, 1990. A year after their wedding, Stacy gave birth to another daughter, who they named Bray. However, as the case is, all too often, the outward life portrayed by Stacy and Michael was really different from the reality of their lives. Michael reportedly struggled with alcohol and drug abuse. The couple also never got to see each other. They worked opposite shifts. Stacy in the day as an ambulance dispatcher and Michael as a mechanic at night. That's hard because we used to do that where you would work the swing shift and I worked during the day and we never saw each other. Oh, yeah, it is rough and it definitely puts a strain on, you know, your relationship a little bit because you never see the other person. It's pretty hard. And it's it's hard to communicate. And I couldn't imagine with two kids. Oh, yeah. We did it with just having to figure out who was doing the dishes. (laughs) Right. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Despite working long hours, the family was always desperate for money. Further polarizing the couple were rumors that they had begun affairs outside of the marriage. But I don't know if they're true. It's just something that had been reported in a few articles, but I couldn't figure out if they were true or not. Nobody ever came out and said I was the person they were having an affair with. Just friends and family said that it seemed like the two were both having affairs, which is sad. Oh, yeah, it is sad. I mean, but you could chalk that up to just them not being as connected because they're never around each other. Right. Maybe they just weren't happy and people took it to that level. Exactly. Another aside is that others, family and friends again, always talked about how the family was kind of separated themselves. Like there was a really strong connection between Michael, the father, and Bree, the youngest daughter, whereas Ashley and Stacy were really close, more like best friends than mother and daughter. Okay. So we have like two kind of relationships forming within this family. Right. This chapter in the lives of Stacy and Michael brings us to late 1999, early 2000. During this time, family members recalled that Stacy was thinking about seeking a divorce and Michael was beginning to feel really sick. He was coughing all the time and losing balance. That sounds like just my life. Like I'm always coughing and falling down. Well, it's kind of bad. It's, it's actually really funny because you do do that. You do trip over yourself constantly, <laughs> and it's actually funny to witness. Yeah, John just laughs now at this point. I mean, you kind of have to. The amount of phones I've cracked. <laughs> <laughs> yes. He also complained about being swollen all the time, which was interesting. So when he expressed this to his family over the holiday season, they're going to beg him to go see a doctor because it really sounds like something he should get checked out. So he promised all of them that once New Year's was over, that he would go see a doctor. And when he did seek medical help, the doctors were really perplexed as to what was going on with him. And they finally decided that he might have an inner ear disorder because that's why he was feeling like unstable a lot of times. But he would have to go get further tests done to see what was wrong. But Michael would never get to go in for those tests. Because weeks after his first visit to the doctor, 
he was found unresponsive on the family couch. Now, at the time, he was home alone with his 12-year-old daughter, Ashley, who recalled that her father didn't look good, but she didn't know what to do about it. And that, I could imagine, was terrifying and traumatizing for Ashley, just to, like, be in the presence of her father when he's going to be found unresponsive and and later he's going to be pronounced dead at the hospital. But she's going to feel like guilt that maybe she should have done something. I mean, yeah, it's hard. I mean, for any child in any situation like that, it is traumatizing. And you do feel guilt because you say to yourself, could I have done something? Even at that age. Like, I I, I mean, I had to call 911 one time as a kid um, because my grandma, my great grandma was really sick. And that was probably the like scariest thing. I'm almost positive it was my great grandma. See, you even forget, but I'm pretty sure. That's what happened. Yeah, memory's not always the most reliable. Yeah. I, I know I did one time, but anyway. And like you always say to yourself, oh, could I have done something better? Yeah. And that sticks with you as you grow no, up. No, it's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, When I was 13 years old, my dad had a minor heart attack in the kitchen when we were home alone with him, me and my sister. And that's something I never forgot. And it was so scary because you don't know what to do. I mean, the only thing you can do is pick up the phone and call 911 but in in like the interim it was terrifying before the ambulance got there so i can only imagine how she felt so when michael was brought to the hospital he was pronounced dead he was only 38 years old now doctors told a distraught stacy that it had been a heart attack that killed him they asked her if she wanted to have an autopsy done And, you know, that makes sense because he's a relatively healthy 38-year-old male. So to have a heart attack that young, I mean, it happens, but, you know, his family kind of wanted the autopsy done. But Stacy is going to trust the doctors, and she refuses the autopsy. Stacy and the girls were able to cash in on Michael's life insurance policy, which amounted to $55,000. Now, the money helped in the beginning, but in the long run, it really wasn't that much money because she, on a minimum wage salary, was trying to support a family of three, and that's just not something that's going to work. So money got tight really quickly. One year after the death of Michael, Stacy met another man through the urging of her boss. She was introduced to a man named David. Now, David was described by others who knew him as being really driven. He actually owned his own business, an air conditioning installation and repair company. He was an outdoorsman who loved snowmobiles, four-wheelers, and he even had a boat. So that's a really different life than the life Stacy and her daughters currently have. To the struggling Stacy, he was a godsend. He provided support, strength, and security for her. And eventually, he's going to convince Stacy to come to work for him as his office manager, which really is going to financially save the family and introduce them to like a whole different kind of like we're not just struggling to get by. We're actually like enjoying ourselves. So David had an adult son and that didn't really interfere too much in the relationship between Stacy and David. However, Stacy's two daughters did have a problem with the relationship. 
Now, the two girls didn't really like their mother's new boyfriend, but we have to remember they're 12 and 15, so we can assume that they didn't want anyone to replace their father, who died suddenly, only a year prior, and they might have just wanted to be alone with their mother. I mean, that's kind of the way it is when when kids are young. They just, they don't want someone else coming in. Especially yeah. a male figure when they just lost their father so tragically. Yeah, of course. It's also like like we just said a little bit. We kind of went into it a little bit, but if you think about it, if if another man comes in, but the kid's still kind of like uh, like a baby or or a young young kid, it's one thing. But when it's like twelve and fifteen, yeah, of course. Yeah, I feel like adults and kids they need time to grieve and accept loss, and I feel feel like them going from their situation then right into a new family kind of blended it's kind of that puts a strain on the relationship between those kids and their mother you know what i mean like they needed to grieve and i feel like sometimes some adults don't think that that needs to happen though they don't prioritize it like they should yeah like they think maybe i'm moving on so my children you know that might have like you know that might have been my life partner but those were my kids' fathers. fathers. So it's just a little different. Yeah, and to make things worse, I mean, this is a time in kids' lives when they begin to rebel. Like in that preteen, teenage years, the girls are probably going through some stuff too because they're, you know, going through puberty and emotions are running high. But at the same time, David wasn't making things easier. He was a really strict disciplinarian and he expected the girls to do everything that he said without question. And he wanted it done exactly when he asked. And the girls tended to question him and not do what he wanted them to do. So this is a really interesting power dynamic struggle family situation that we now have going on with Stacy, her daughters, and her new boyfriend, David. All right, let's get back to the show. So two years after they started dating, Stacy and David are going to marry in 2003. Like all marriages, especially ones in which the spouses work together, theirs had highs and lows. The couple was known to fight, but also to show a lot of affection for each other in public. But 2005 became a rough year for David. His father had passed away, leaving him with a void that was just impossible to fill. During this time, the couple's fights became more and more frequent. On Sunday, August 21st, the couple had a really intense fight that ended in David locking himself in the couple's bedroom with a bottle of Southern Comfort. Stacy, trying to get clothes that she would need for work the next day, knocked on the door, but there was no response. So she put her ear to the door to see if she could hear anything, and she did. She heard her husband snoring, so she chose to just leave him alone. The next morning, she woke up, dressed in what she could find from the dryer, and yelled to her husband that she was going to work. He had replied back to her. It was 5 a.m. Now, Stacy continued on with her day. Now, at the office of David's air conditioning installation and repair company, it was just a normal Monday, except for the fact that the boss hadn't come in. At around 2 p.m., Stacy decided to call the police because she was concerned about her husband. He wasn't picking up the phone. 
There was no response. He hadn't come into work. And he had locked himself in the room for a really long time. So she knew that he also had been depressed because of the passing of his father. So she was getting a little bit nervous about his well-being. So when she called 911, she said she was concerned because of his depression. He didn't show up at work. And the last time that she had talked to him was around 5 a.m. that morning. And it was really kind of just a short response. So the dispatcher told Stacy that they were going to perform a wellness check on him. While police were on their way, the dispatcher was asking about David's behavior the night before and over the weekend. And she told them about the fights that they had been having and the big fight they had that weekend and that he had locked himself in their room with a bottle of alcohol. So when police got to the house, they informed her that the doors were locked and she gave them permission to break them down. She was scared to death that something was wrong because they had told her that his vehicle was still on the premise. So it's not like he had went somewhere. When the police broke into the bedroom, they found David dead in the bedroom. It looked like he had killed himself violently. Police found two glasses on the nightstand, one with a curious green liquid in them, and that liquid was later tested and it was determined to be antifreeze. Um, I mean, that's pretty crazy. I mean, I mean, I know when people are in a bad way, they can do pretty much anything and it's very sad to see but that is a very bad way to go yes it is and it's actually very rare um death from antifreeze ingestion is painful and to die so quickly from ingesting antifreeze it meant that david had to have had consumed high doses of it when looking up death by antifreeze ingestion and oh my god i hope no one ever looks at my search history it goes like from is Amber from Teen Mom in Jail to what's death by antifreeze like? So it's just really rough. And I kept looking up antifreeze poisoning death. And I just kept getting messages popping up on the computer about like suicide prevention hotlines. So like my computer is very concerned for me <laughs> right now. That's insane. <laughs> yeah. That is crazy. So it's really rough. Everything I learned. And while everything I found, thank God, was talking about the accidental poisoning, not like how to commit suicide with antifreeze, it was interesting to see the, the process and the progression of the poisoning. So there are stages that take place through the poisoning process, but that's only if it's ingested within with small amounts. Now, they talk about the death of antifreeze. Like a quarter of a cup of antifreeze, if not treated properly, can kill a human being in 72 hours. But we know that David didn't die in a 72-hour period. So the stages must have been accelerated. And based on the death, time of death issued by the coroner, it seemed like David died within 18 hours of him locking himself in the bedroom according to the time Stacy said. Right. So this means that at least over a cup of antifreeze was consumed by David. Now, the first stages of the poisoning is similar to that of someone being drunk on alcohol because alcohol and antifreeze have similar compositions, 
but our body just breaks down the two substances very differently. When consumed quickly, the liquid antifreeze, it actually crystallizes in our organs, especially our kidneys. And these acidic chemicals in the body affect the acid-base balance of the nervous system, causing the overworking of the heart and the lungs. And it causes internal bleeding due to the crystallization. So based on the crystallization forming and the effects on the nervous system and internal bleeding, it causes the person who consumes the antifreeze to cough and vomit blood. So when David was found in the room, there was a significant amount of blood around him on the bed and on the carpet. However, the cause of death eventually will be the failure of the kidneys before anything else, but the pain is extreme. And it's a very difficult way to die. And like I said before, it's really uncommon way to commit suicide. The scene was one police had never come across before. It did appear to be a suicide. Stacy was distraught and screaming on the phone, and she was the same when she finally got home. But the investigators had to ask themselves, where was the suicide note? Because this was such an unusual scene, the police wanted to treat it as a crime scene until it was ruled a suicide, just in case anything went wrong. So they bagged everything they could find in the room. On the bedside table, they bagged two glasses. One of them was empty and the other contained that liquid, that green, it was like neon green liquid. Then there was also an empty container of cranberry juice. There was an open bottle of antifreeze under the bed. And there was one other piece of evidence that, interestingly enough, was not found in the bedroom where David was found dead, but it was found in the garbage can in the kitchen. And that was a turkey baster that smelled like alcohol. One suspicious investigator chose to run fingerprinting on all the items retrieved from the house. So while the results of the test were coming back, investigators chose to look into the family history. And as we know, it's an interesting history. They learn about the death of Stacy's first husband, Michael. And to think about it, it's pretty interesting that for the most part, a healthy 38-year-old man would just die one day in his home, and his family didn't want to have an autopsy performed. It seemed suspicious. So papers were put in to exhume the body of Michael, and those papers were pushed through to a judge quite quickly after the results from the fingerprinting analysis came back because they belonged to someone other than David. They belonged to Stacy. So real quick, mm-hmm. because this is this is a lot of information to take in because you kind of knew where this was going. I feel like, like my for okay. me, it might take another twist. You don't know that that is true. But so far, if I was <laughs> distraught and I went into my, our bedroom with a bottle of Southern Comfort, mm-hmm. and then you left for work and you couldn't reach me, I know. Wait, that first of all, that's when you say it like that. That's so bizarre. Like, that's crazy. Well, it's bizarre in itself. I wouldn't have left for work if you were still locked but, in the bedroom well, and I knew yeah. you were depressed. All right. Well, let's just say for argument's sake. I'm just sake, saying it's all suspicious. Yeah, let's just say for argument's sake, though, you did and you left for work and you didn't hear from me. I truly believe without – there's no question in my mind that you wouldn't even call 911 to do a wellness check. You would have left work and 
come here first. And if something was wrong with me, you probably would have called 911 after that. Right. I don't think you would have called 911. You would have left work and come see if I was okay. Right. To because you know I didn't leave the house. N- like, break down your doors. Right. Why wouldn't you have even been there just to open them? I feel like wellness checks are more for people who are on the older side and you have a, like a mother or a father or an uncle or an aunt that are not always capable of taking care of themselves. That's what a wellness check is for. Or for those girls from the R. Kelly documentary. Okay, that's yes. true. <laughs> um, which is crazy, by the way. If you haven't seen that, you should. Yeah, we just binged it. It's yeah. absolutely insane. I We both deleted all of our R. Kelly music from our phone, never listening to no, it again. Absolutely not. Psycho. But anyway. You have to watch that. Sorry. No, it's okay. But anyway, though. I'm but so ser- mad about it. Okay. But seriously, though, that is what a wellness check is for. In my opinion. So for her her to do that, I feel like that's just like the easy, like an easy way for her not to be involved. So like it doesn't look too obvious, but it really does look like you did it or something. It makes you look weird that you called wellness check. You're the boss's wife. You can leave your job at any point and go see your husband. So you think what she did by calling the police points to her guilt. Oh, yes. She thought the opposite, though, in my opinion. She thought that by doing the wellness check, it would make her look not as suspect as, you know, you get what I'm saying? I get what you're saying. Okay, guys, let's get back to the episode. So once the fingerprints came back as Stacy's, she was brought into the police station for questioning. And again, she told police that she believed David was depressed because of the death of his father. But now when his family was asked about David's depression, they said that he was upset, but he never indicated or seemed like he was depressed or suicidal in any way. And this is when they inform her that she's not under arrest, but she was considered a suspect. They thought that there was some foul play going on. They also let her know that they were moving forward with the exhuming of her former husband's body just to check she told them that michael was sick before his heart attack and they came back at her saying that his medical records show that the only serious condition he had his whole life was a hernia so there was no serious medical condition that they thought would lead to a heart attack at 38 years old with no prior signs and This is just a side note that's, like, super creepy. So, Stacy and Michael bought, like, a plot together, like, a cemetery plot where the two of them would be buried next to each other. And there was a headstone made already with their birthdays on it. So, of course, when Michael passed away, he was buried in the grave. But now when David dies, Stacy thinks, oh, I have a, a plot. So she buried David next to Michael, like where she was supposed to be. So now her two husbands are buried right next to each other. That's weird. You know what I'm getting? I'm getting Black Widow vibes right now. That's what you're feeling? I don't like it. I don't like it. It's just really strange. So the headstone had to be changed, but her two husbands were buried right next to each other. But police do say, and so did David's family, they said that it was clear that Stacy was really shaken up about this whole thing. Now, the next piece of evidence that was revealed is the reading of David's will. It turned out that everything, everything, including his company, was left to Stacy and her daughters, and his adult son was to receive nothing. 
Wow. I mean, that's that's pretty crazy. I mean, I, I understand, you know, blended family and all, but I do feel that, you know, when you have a, you know, you have a child, you know, whether, you know, how many, no matter how many kids you have, you should be trying to look out for them in case something ever happens to you, you know? Yeah. That's bizarre. Well, let's not forget either that David has only known Stacy and her daughters for, at this point, six years to his death. So the fact that he would just write his adult son completely out of the will, and there was no ill feelings towards each other. Like, they still talked all the time, and there was nothing wrong. Like, the two didn't have a fight or a falling out and didn't speak. So the will reading was very interesting to police, and they thought that, okay, there's there's got to be something going on here, right? So they were thinking that Stacy, like you said, had possibly poisoned both of her husbands. The only thing that they needed to confirm this, though, was the presence of those telltale crystals within the body of Michael, which they were exhuming. And on September 5th, 2007, Michael's body was exhumed. When analyzed by a medical examiner, it was found that Michael's body was filled with the crystals that form from antifreeze poisoning. So you know what that, now, I'm just going to say what I think, and you probably have the answers, but I'm just going to say oh, what I, I think. I have all the answers. So quickly, I think that when she killed Michael, right, when she poisoned Michael, I think she was, like, in her own weird way, sadistic way, experimenting. And it was probably small quantities that she was able to sneak into, like, his food or something. So, like, that's why he And was that's sick. why he was sick for so long, and that's why there was an exorbitant amount of crystals within his body because it was in a long-term exposure, whereas the second dude had large quantities because she wanted to end it quick. Yeah. And, but it just had it just had very bad effects. So I, that's what I think what happened with those two bodies. It definitely was a slow poisoning over time with Michael, but then I think it might have been a big dosage at the end because he was complaining to his family about symptoms that – and when I looked up antifreeze poisoning, are consistent with antifreeze poisoning. Because at first, it's like consuming alcohol. You're losing your balance. You're feeling bloated. Um, and you're disoriented. And that were the symptoms that he was going through. And he was coughing because of the damage it was doing to his nervous system. So, yeah, that totally does appear to be what had happened to Michael. Now, based on the discovery of this evidence, the police obtained warrants to set up cameras outside of Stacy's house at the gravesite of both of her husbands. Still super weird. And they also wiretapped her phone. Stacy was brought in for questioning again, of course, after the examination of Michael's body. And it was during this interview that she made a really interesting Freudian slip. The detective recalled asking Stacy, do you remember which glass it was that you poured the cranberry juice in? Remember, there was an empty cranberry juice bottle found by David's body. Yeah. And Stacy looked at him and said, well, I poured the antifreeze. Uh, um, and she like cut herself off. And then she accused the detective of trying to like frame her and make her say the wrong thing. But she literally said, well, I poured the antifreeze in the. I mean. How 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 dumb do you have to be? I mean, you've done this already once before, 
Like, and to this point. And got away with it. Right, exactly. To this point, you've been but you've you gone scot-free. But we don't know yet what is happening. That's true. Could be more twists. Maybe. So this is where Stacy decides to stop the interview, and she makes a phone call to her best friend, her daughter, Ashley. Now, Ashley was actually headed home from her first day of college classes when her phone rang, and it was her mother. Stacy asked her daughter if she wanted to come home and have a drink. It had been a hard day for both of them, and they both deserved it. Now, don't forget, the police had Stacy's phone wiretapped, so they heard the entirety of this conversation. Ashley then told her mother that during her first day of classes, two investigators pulled her out of her class and told her that after the examination of her father's body, it was discovered that he had actually died of antifreeze poisoning. And the reason why they're questioning Ashley is because, remember, she was the only one home with him at the time of his death. Remember when she was 12? Right. So they wanted to ask her, like, do you remember anything? And she told them she just remembered her father looking sick. So Stacy told Ashley that she had no idea what investigators were talking about. And she had faith that the investigation would run its course and reveal the truth because she had nothing to do with it. So Ashley confirmed that she was coming home for that drink. What a rough, like your first day of college, you're like, oh, trying to make friends. Investigators are knocking on the door, asking you to come out, talking about your father being murdered. I mean, that is pretty rough. Yeah, I'd be like, yeah. oh my God, <laughs> you're like killing my whole vibe here. <laughs> so the two, based on their accounts and based on the account of Bree, the younger sister, um, drank until they got drunk that night, and eventually they passed out in their respective bedrooms. Stacy continued to get drunk all of the days after this, but Ashley said she had to refrain from drinking um, until she was done with her college classes for the week. She also told her mother that she had other things to do. But on September 13th, the two were drinking together again. Stacy told her daughter that they should really be drinking because they were celebrating Ashley's 21st birthday early since she was going to be out with her friends on the actual day of her birthday. Bree knew that her mother and sister were drinking, but she didn't partake because she was too young. The next morning, Bree went to wake up her sister, who was in her own bed, and she realized that she was barely breathing. She ran to get her mother, who quickly called 911. But as her mother was explaining to the operator what was happening, Bree found a typed letter left at Ashley's bedside. It was a 750-word suicide note. In the note, she confessed to the murder of her father and her stepfather. Her father because of his addiction and favoritism towards her younger sister, and her stepfather because of the way he treated her mother and her and her sister. It stated that she felt guilty, and because of this, she had to take her own life. Wow. Oh, my yeah. God. So Stacy kept repeating to the operator, there's a note, there's a note, there's a suicide note. She isn't breathing. Please hurry. And they did hurry. Ashley was rushed to the hospital where her stomach was pumped. The whole time investigators awaited what was happening with their newest suspect. Doctors found what would later be called a cornucopia of drugs in her system. So she had taken pills. 
If her sister hadn't found her when she did, she would have died. But she didn't die. She woke up in the hospital, shocked. She didn't know where she was or who these people were all around her. After she was checked out one final time by the doctors, investigators insisted on seeing her. They asked her why she killed her father and stepfather, and what made her finally decide that the guilt was so overwhelming that she would need to kill herself. She just sat there, wide-eyed. And then they asked her if everything in the suicide note was the truth. And again, she just sat there. Until finally she spoke, and she said, I didn't try and kill myself. I didn't leave a suicide note. I would never, or could never, kill anyone. She told the investigators that the last thing she remembered was drinking with her mother. She said she drank all of the drinks that her mother had made for her. She remembered that the drinks didn't taste good and that they actually burned her throat. But her mother said that she was sorry it was the only alcohol they had to drink and just to put the straw all the way in the back of her throat so she didn't have to taste it. She said that she just did what her mother told her to. She remembers that she got tired and then she went to go lay down. And that was the last thing she remembered. You've got to be kidding me. Seriously. I know. I made she, you think she did oh it though, my for a second. God. <laughs> that was good. But oh my God. So, I mean, she was pretty much using her daughter as a way to get out of it all. Her best friend. That her is daughter. insane. That's your kid. I know. Oh. Just when you thought she couldn't be more of a monster, she tries to kill her own daughter. There is something extremely wrong with the mother. I mean, really. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you, I mean, most likely. And this this is the case of Stacy Castor, and that's really the reason why I refrained from using last names, because it was a really big case in the media, so I didn't want people to immediately know who I was talking about, so that's why I refrained from all the last names so far. Okay. That's why I was kind of wondering why you weren't giving full yeah. details here, but you There's know what? There's a method to the madness. Listen, totally worth it, though. <laughs> let's keep going. Well, first, let's take a break from our final sponsor. So, once police heard what Ashley had to say, they turned right around and they and they arrested Stacy Castor. Not only for the murder of her two husbands, Michael Wallace and David Castor, but also for the attempted murder of her daughter, Ashley Wallace. Well, good. In an interview later, Stacy is going to say that the only other time she had gotten in trouble with the law was for a speeding ticket when she was 18. So when she was handcuffed and read her rights at the hospital, she was terrified. Just I'm sure as terrified everyone else was was dying. Of course, Stacy's mother doesn't believe that her daughter could have done what she's accused of doing, especially poisoning her own daughter. But on December 20th, 2007, Stacy Castor was indicted on one count each of second-degree murder and second-degree attempted murder and plot to present a forged will. Don't forget David Castor's will. That makes sense. It was a forged signature. Wow. Oh, my God. However, the court dates are pushed back because of the complications that have to do with exhuming a body and how many people have to examine that body, both on the prosecution and defense side. But on September 25th, 2008, 
a judge finally rules that the death of Michael Wallace can be submitted as evidence. So she's not being charged with the death of Michael Wallace, but it's going to be used as evidence in the case that they have for her against the killing of David Castor and the attempted killing of her daughter. Putting the final nail in the relationship with her daughter and possibly daughters, Stacy Castor's defense team and her follow the line of defense that it was her daughter, Ashley, that was responsible for the death of David Castor and that she did try and kill herself. But when her suicide attempt was unsuccessful, she now is denying writing the letter. So it's like you you tried to kill your daughter and now you're not even you're not even admitting to it to maybe try and salvage some type of relationship with your daughter. You're still sticking to the story that your daughter is the one that killed your husband. I yeah, I mean that's incredible in itself, but think about this for one second. There's no way you're going to be able to salvage that relationship because now that she knows what her mother's being charged with and is capable and of. is capable of exactly she lost her father because her mother killed her father. There's no way I think that you can mend that kind of you know broken relationship. Right. So regardless, right? Like even put the attempted murder aside. Exactly. He still killed our father. Exactly. But the prosecution easily combats this strategy with what they described as very compelling evidence against Stacy. The trial began in January of 2009. And she was facing 25 years to life. The strategy was to try and get Stacy convicted for the death of David and the attempted murder of Ashley. They weren't including the murder of Michael in the charging, but just as evidence so they could establish a pattern that was creating with Stacy. And God forbid things didn't go well and she wasn't found guilty. They could later charge her for the death of Michael. The most gut-wrenching part of the trial was when Ashley took the stand. She tearfully described how she had to watch her father die and how heartbreaking it is to know that her own mother, who she thought was her best friend, tried to not just kill her, but frame her for the murders that she herself had committed. But the most dramatic part of the trial was when Stacy herself was on the witness stand. And when she got cross-examined by the prosecution, he revealed that he had computer evidence and he presented it to the court that not only did Stacy type the suicide note, but she also had constructed two drafts that were saved on her computer, her personal computer. Isn't that crazy? Oh, it's, it's, it's absurd. I mean, I think that she planned this so well like oh she thought it was gonna go so well right. she was backed into yeah, a corner exactly. and that's when the drinking yes like the drinking party started with her daughter now it's so interesting when you read about suicide notes that are forged by other people and like we saw in other cases like the john benet ramsey case they're they're always extensively written like they're really long 750 word suicide note is a really long suicide note in reality True suicide notes are usually very short in nature. Yeah. I so mean, the that's... fact that she wrote this 750 word suicide note, it's like she's the worst ever. I don't want to say this because it sounds weird, but like if I feel like, yes, a long note like that would would make me question it. So it's almost like the shorter it is, the 
more believable. Correct. It, it would be, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so yeah, because I think that's a sign. It ter- a turns you off. Who's committing suicide isn't in the right frame of mind to sit down and write an essay. No, of course not. So it doesn't usually always work that way. I mean, not saying that some suicide notes aren't very long or written before the act itself takes place, but forged suicide notes tend to be longer than actual suicide notes are because the person's trying to get this explanation out as to why this person committed suicide because there needs to be a reason. Yeah. Oh, wait, and I'm sorry, the John Bonet Ramsey, it's a... It's not a suicide note. It was a ransom note. It's a ransom but note. But you know what I mean? Like forged notes right. tend to be longer because they want to explain more. Yeah. Because I, it is fake. Yeah, I think what you're also trying to say is it's really just based on the case. Like not all suicide notes, you know, that could be the reason for them or whatever. But just in this particular case, it kind of makes you think that there's no way that they wrote that, that it was forged. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So this, on top of the fingerprint evidence... And the created pattern because of the death of Michael Wallace, it was overwhelming. But still, the jury deliberated for four days. On February 5th, 2009, they found Stacey Castor guilty of all charges. Second-degree murder of David Castor, attempted murder of her daughter, and forging of David Castor's will. She was sentenced a month later to 51 years in prison. In an interview from the same year, Ashley Wallace said the following, I hate my mother for ruining so many people's lives. What gave her the right to play God with people? I never knew what hate was until now. Even though I do hate her, I still love her at the same time. She was my best friend too. And then she took it all away. I would have done anything for her but she decided that she wanted to kill me instead. Stacy Castor died in prison of natural causes in 2016 when she was 48 years old. She hadn't seen her daughters since the day of her conviction. Hopefully her heart attack was really a heart attack. It's actually kind of weird, right? Yeah. I mean, we have no evidence. Full I mean, full circle kind of thing. Yeah, of course. But yeah, I mean, that's, you know, I, somebody like that, I mean, they kind of deserve that. Oh, yeah. They shouldn't be with anyone right. out there in the world. There was something wrong with her because even if the relationships were not going well, they were bad relationships, the, these planned poisonings were horrific. And, you know, she really did get away with the killing of Michael Wallace, but still that wasn't enough for her. And she killed her second husband. The same way. And she thought she was smarter than the police, even though she was the most obvious person of all time. And then when she was going to be charged with it, she tried to pin it on her daughter. Yeah. There's nothing more callous than that. No. And, and she knew she was that they were closing in on her. That's why she did that. You, oh, know, yeah. you know what I mean? They, she knew. She was like an animal backed in a corner. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So that is our episode 61 on Stacy Castor. I hope that you guys enjoyed it. We'd love to hear what you think. Again, like always, like all of our episodes, we'll put up pictures and stuff on Instagram and on Twitter. And I have to say that was sneaky. Sneaky you K. You like that? Yeah. Sneaky K. <laughs> because I, if I would have known the name, I probably would have been able to it figure it out It would have sounded like familiar. Yes. I know sometimes you guys Google stuff, so I want to prevent the Googling because the story is so fascinating. And I wanted you guys to see it from the eyes of the investigators 
And when the suicide note from Ashley came out, they really truly thought, oh my God, we were looking at the wrong person the whole time because Ashley was alone with her father. Yeah. So it was, it's an interesting twisty case, you know? I liked it a lot. So what we're going to do right now actually is we're going to record a Patreon episode for our Patreons and we are going to put this episode up without any ads for our $5 and up. So we're excited to bring that to our Patreon listeners. If you want to donate to our Patreon page, you can do that at patreon.com slash true crime couple. Also, if you could leave us a review, that's always really super helpful. But more than anything, what we would love for you guys to do is just tell someone about us because getting the word out is the best thing you could do to support us. Yeah. Word of mouth. It's key. Yes. So we will be back in two weeks for another regular scheduled episode. Thanks, guys. Bye, guys.